Phil leads with Jan the Vineyard in the USA, the movement, hundreds of churches across the United States, I guess about 600 churches. And uh, I've known Phil, we've known Phil for actually many years, but especially in the last two years have become really quite close. And they have invested in us, loved us, prayed for us, given us wise counsel, listened to us when tears have rolled down our cheeks. And, uh, you know, they're just chapters ahead of us in this national director thing. And it's such a thrill to have you here this morning. Would you please welcome Phil Strout? Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. We're going to parachute into an Old Testament story this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I don't know if you have what devices you have. Some of you might have a, like a Jurassic actual Bible. Uh, you might have an iPad or an iPhone or a knee pad or any type of device that works for you. It is a joy to be with a church in a moment like this, in, in a moment where uh, you are sharing transition, where your church has clearly and sovereignly uh, been chosen to affect the conversation of Christianity here in your nation and much further. And I know that may sound exaggerated, it may sound like hyperbole and just a lot of use of words, but the fact of the matter is the Trent Vineyard is uh, in, a, in a transition where your uh, pastors will be leading the Vineyard churches in this nation. And the influence of John and Debbie also goes around the world. And so, you know, when you consider your church, when you say, well, you know, how many people belong to the Trent Vineyard? You could say, oh, hundreds of thousands. You, you don't just count those that I always say, wherever I live, that is my parish. So people ask me, well, Phil, how many are in uh, part of Pathway Vineyard? Oh, I say, oh, about 60,000. And they look and they say, really? I say, oh, yes. Only 1,000 of them get up on Sunday to come to church. The other 59,000 sleep in. But we actually, we look at ourselves as the pastors of all of them. And every once in a while, we bump into them on the journey. So being here this morning and, and sharing in this, this moment with you, with your pastors and the, and the church that is giving so much, uh, it, it, it begs the question, and if I do my job uh, over the next few minutes, here's my big idea. And I believe we've got some media for this, but here's the big idea. If, I, if, we, if we connect, it's going to be this. It's never safe to think that certainly the Lord would not ask that of me. Certainly, God would not ask such a thing from me or of me. And I just want to say, yes, he will. See, he's under the impression that he's God. He's under the impression he can do anything that he wants at any time and request anything from anybody for any reason. A bit bullish. But we have so many, there's just a plethora of, of biblical stories where when you read them, you go, really? Really, God? I mean, really? And I, so I've picked out one of those, really, God? 
stories this morning. So I'm going to read through this, make some commentary, then I'm going to tell you about a Jesuit priest, and then see if the Lord doesn't speak to us about specific things that where this applies to you as an individual, and then to you possibly as a, a corporate church, as a, as a church, as a group of people. See, I can't make the application to your personal life. I don't know you. I don't know where you're at. And I don't know the things the Lord has been nudging in your heart. But I'm sure of this. He's been butting in on your life. I don't know if you use that phrase, but he's been, yeah, I don't know how to translate that. It's just a phrase. <laughs> Usually, I have to uh, ask for forgiveness for my accent. I'm from the Northeast in the United States, and we take off R's where they go, and we put them where they don't exist. And for some reason, my fellow countrymen get quite irritated with that, but I think you folks will get it. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was from, of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah says there's going to be drought. That we, we're just, we are parachuting on a, just a multitude of story and understanding of this prophetic being. Verse 2 says, The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here, and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is in the east of the Jordan. So God has given him clear instruction. Move. Verse 4, It shall be that you will drink of the brook, that, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So the Lord there's this exchange, there's judgment in this on Israel, there's judgment on people, there's all sorts of prophetic activity going on, and the Lord says, move on, and go, and gives clear uh, uh, direction. He says, camp right beside this brook right there, because by that brook, there will be provision. You will have water, and I've instructed the ravens to bring you food. Okay? I think we can do that. So this is what it says, verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Now that's a big deal. We can read it fast, but it is a, it's just a gigantic, huge, colossal issue in how we the earthlings walk with a divine person. He went and he did according to the word of the Lord, according to to the Word of God. According to what he was instructed to do, he went and did exactly what he was told to do. What's a good way to get on in the dynamic of this spiritual journey? To do exactly what the Lord says to do. That's, it sounds, it, some of this that I'm going to share in these few minutes, it's going to preach good, but living it out's a whole nother gig. You know that. Verse 6, it says, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. God gave Elijah instruction. Elijah followed the instruction, and God did what he said he was going to do. I will provide for you. Here's something I want you to do, and I will provide for you. He did it, and he did it. It's kind of good. Then we have this verse 7. It happened after a while 
After a while, when you have drought, brooks are going to dry up. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Okay? Then the word of the Lord said to him, saying, verse 9, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he's, he's camped out by that brook by the word of the Lord. God instructed him what to do, and he did it. And the provision of God came in that obedience. But there came a day where, where once he could drink from, no longer provided drink for him. And God says, see, this is a dynamic life we live. It's not a static life. It's a dynamic life. And what was good for yesterday may not be good for tomorrow. Where the Lord provides water one day, he doesn't necessarily provide the water the next day. Oftentimes, through this long journey, the pilgrimage that we as the earthlings have here on the earth, we think if, if, there's, if God has done something and I've met God there and there was a divine provision there, I will always have divine provision there. God says, no, no, that was for that season. Now there's another season. And if you stay too long at that brook, you will dry up. And you will swear it's somebody else's fault. And you will say, well, I'm just not being fed. I'm just not, I just, oh, ah, ooh. And God says, no, no, no. An affectionate name for me, when the Lord really speaks to me and, and really wants to get my attention, he says, no, no, peewee, it's over here. I'm saying, God, this is the way I've always met you. This is the way this has always worked. You certainly wouldn't be saying, do this. He goes, yes, I would. So now he gives some more instruction. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belonged to Sidon, and stay there. In verse 9, behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Ooh. New orders, new promise, new promise of provision. Dynamic life, not a static life. It's a big deal. Verse 10, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was gathering sticks, and he called to her. This is just wrong. He says, please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Not so bad in Middle Eastern culture. It's not unusual for a, a traveler to ask for water, and it's not unusual to respond. She responds, as she's going, in verse 11, as she's going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, okay, water, all right. No, 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 but bring me a piece of bread also. So she responds, and we can't really extract this from the text, but I'm assuming she was a little tart, a little, little tight here with this response. She said, as the Lord your God lives, not my God, your God, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar, and behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. A poor widow 
hungry, thirsty, scraping together. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, make it dramatic, but think about it. A widow, poor, thirsty, hungry, and along comes the man of God. It says, uh, by the way, uh, uh, could I have a drink of water? And she accommodating is what water, what little is left. Remember, they're in a drought. And she says, well, I, you know, I'm going to, uh, he says, and also a little cake, a little, a little piece of bread. And she says, well, I don't have much. Then Elijah, verse 13, says, do not fear. Go do as you've said. Go, go, make, the, go make the bread. But make me a little bread cake from it first. Oh, man of God. That is kind to the poor and the needy and the orphaned and the widows. Well, certainly God would not require of this poor woman to make this man of God a piece of cake. She says, We've got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make one more piece of bread, and then my son and I are going to die. And the man of God says, okay, get on with it. Bring me first, bring me a piece of bread. Now, every hair on your back, your neck just stands up saying, this is one of those, really, God? Really, that's the way you treat a widow? That's the way you treat a son that's father is no longer on the picture. They're starving to death. They're thirsty. And you come along. You send one of your guys along and put such a demand. And God goes, oh, yeah. It's because, see, when God does make these unusual requests, and this is what I'm learning on the journey. When God makes unusual requests of us, it's because he knows the why. And he knows where it's leading and what's going to happen. See, I've always thought that, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I did not, was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, I came to Christ as, uh, in, almost in the end of my high school years. So I didn't have a whole lot of um, prejudices, what God does and does not do. When I converted to Christ... I just started reading the Bible. And I read it and read it, and I had all of these constant, really, really, that is crazy. I would never do that. That's me. Then I realized that, see, and this is the way this has been painted. We tell people, oh, just invite Christ into your life. Make Jesus a part of your life. Like, it's your life, and bring the infinite, transcendent Elohim Adonai, the one that creates everything with the Word, bring him into your little narrative. Or Elohim Adonai, that, he had, that is transcendent and at the same time intimate, he says, would you like to come into my story? Would you like to live a dynamic, divine adventure? That's what I look at. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Uh, I, 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 I'm an activist by nature. And, uh, but as I've grown older, I you know, added in pieces of more of a contemplative life to balance it out a little bit and maybe live longer. 
Maybe, I don't, there's no guarantee on that one. But see, this is just one of many stories. Elijah says to her, do not fear, go do as you've said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. Bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Oh, my. Now, tell me, honestly, eyeball to eyeball. Look, look, isn't that like, oh, really, God? Isn't, is that your reaction? It's got to be. It, it's so kind to say, oh, and, and make one for yourself. But afterwards, me first, which violates everything we think, everything we teach. But this is verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. An incredible picture of Matthew 6.33 when Jesus says, let me, let, let me help you understand the kingdom. Put the kingdom first and everything else is added unto you. Matthew 6.33. So she went, and I love this, she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour that she had just enough for one piece of bread, the bowl of flour was not exhausted. The jar of oil, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. Why did he do this? Because he's going to do this. Why did he ask that? Because he's going to do that. The Lord asked strange Things. The Lord asks sometimes things that he just sort of pushes us a little bit further. Let me tell you about a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, he's sort of like a, a midlife mentor. Uh, he's deeply, deeply touched my life. I, I've never met the guy, but, but uh, he died in 1984. But he was a Jesuit priest. In 1929, 12 years post-revolution in Russia, 1929, the Pope of the Catholic Church wrote an open letter to the church, but specifically addressing the brothers of the Jesuit order. And he, in our vernacular, he was recruiting for religious workers just in case the day would come when Russia would open up again its doors to religious workers. Because, you know, just think historically, 12 years post-revolution, there are no Christian workers, there, no, there, there, there are no seminaries, there's, there's no schools, there's no parishes, there's no priests, there's no religious workers, there are no churches. They've all been exiled, they've been in prison, or they've been murdered. But prophetically, the Pope, I believe, seeing that another day may come on the earth, another day may come in the political and, 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 and social situation, and said, if that day ever comes, we need to have some people prepared. There was a young seminarian, a young Jesuit seminarian, that uh, uh, was sitting in chapel time at the seminary where he was being trained, and he heard the letter, the open letter to the church being read by one of the professors. And he said that he instantly knew, immediately he knew, that's me. Ah, that, that is me. He just zeroed in on it. Whoa, 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 whoa. They're recruiting for a place where at this moment in time, religious workers are killed, exiled, or imprisoned. I'll go. 
he went immediately after this class to the professor, and he said, that's me, I'm your man. Long story short, or as short as I can make it, he spent the next 10 years in Rome being trained in the Eastern Rite. 1939, he found himself with an assignment with a group of Jesuit brothers in eastern Poland on the Russian front, very near the border between Poland and, and, and Russia. And, and he was just carrying on his duties as a priest when World War II broke out. And as soon as Germany invaded Poland, maybe within 14 days, I don't know the exact days, Russia also invaded Poland. Germany on the Western Front, Russia invading Poland on the Eastern Front, chaos ensued, and there was this mass exodus of people into Russia fleeing Germany and fleeing out of Poland. So he thought, here, here, here we go, here, because they're not, they're, they don't have a, a border crossing when you're having 10, 15, 20,000 people a day crossing into the border, crossing over the border. It's just, a, just masses of people. So he just got in the masses of this, of, of this group of people, found himself in Russia, and he found a job at a logging camp, and for the next year just kept silent. He didn't tell anybody, I'm a priest, I'm here to be a missionary, I want to, I want to minister to the people of this great country. That was his heart. But he couldn't tell anybody that. He was just sort of finding the landscape. If you remember, about a year later, when Germany invaded Russia, everything broke. The day that Russia was invaded, this Jesuit priest was arrested by what we came to be known as the KGB. KGB arrested this priest. He was charged with being a spy for Germany. He was taken to the Lubyanka prison in Red Square, the prison that exists to this day. He was taken there and he was kept in solitary confinement under inhuman in uh, uh, investigation, physical treatment, mental, emotional, everything you can imagine. Five years, five years, solitary confinement and abuse almost inhuman. And after five years, they realized, okay, he was not he was not a spy for Germany, but he's a spy for the Vatican, and that's exactly what he was charged for, and under executive orders was sentenced to 15 years in the gulags of northern of Siberia. So he found himself in the gulags, and as, as this goes, he spent the next 15 years in inhuman condition and treatment, but as this happened, he became the priest of thousands and tens of thousands of political prisoners. And he would hold, I remember the first time when I read this, he would hold 90-second retreats with political prisoners. Now, when, when you and I say retreat, I think Hilton. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, uh, nice. We're going on a church retreat this weekend. Wonderful! We're going to go have some meals and study the Bible, pray for one another, have some adult beverage, you know, relax. His retreat was 90 seconds. Why? Because that's how long they had between when the guard went one way before the guard came back through. 
And in 90 seconds, he would hear confession. 90 seconds, he would serve communion. When he had enough uh, fermented juice from the raisins, 90 seconds, he would just have them. And they, they, he created this ability to, to help them understand an interior castle. And he was, the, 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 the torture, the whole story, is all, it's almost inexplicable. After 15 years, now he's been in Lubyanka 5, he's been 15 years in the gulags, He's literally ministered to thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of prisoners, but he himself had just been abused in a way that it, it, it cannot be explained. They come to him, they said, okay, we're good. You, you, five years in Lubyanka, 15 years in the Gulags. You can now leave, but you cannot. You will never return to the United States, and you will, you will never leave Siberia, but you're a free man. And we want you to live in that town right there. You're free to go right there. So the priest did. Walter Sizek. He went to that town where he was told to go. There you, you're a free man. Live right there. So he did. What did he do? He planted a church. Planted a church. Just started doing communion, hearing confession, ministering, doing weddings, funerals, the whole thing. Just started doing what, what pastors do. KGB came a year later. Said, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on. You can't do that. What are you you're going to throw me like over there? Are you going to put me over? What are you going to do? I, this is what I do. I'm a priest. I've told you for 20 years I'm a priest. They go, well, you have 24 hours. Get your stuff together. We're moving you to another town. You're a free man. Now go live over there. <laughs> Gets his stuff together. They move him to another town. And what's he do? Plants a church. The, the, the second one's a blast, but I, I don't have time to tell you the whole thing of the second one. A year later, the KGB comes back and says, what are you doing? You can't do this. This is not allowed. Oh, oops. Sorry. Um, and they go, 24, you have 24 hours. Get your stuff together. We're moving. You're a free man, and you're going to go live over there. He goes to the third town in his third year, plants another church. This one explodes. Boom, it's going. It's just going. KGB comes back a year later, says, what are you doing? We've told you three times. And then they, they sort of, the lights finally went on. Hold on, hold it. The KGB is financing church planting in Siberia. <laughs> so what are they going to do with this guy? Literally what they did was they called the U.S. State Department and they said, we have these two pesty Jesuit priests that we would like to trade you for two of our spies. In 1963, Walter Sizek was put on a plane, flown back to the United States from whence he had come, got off the airplane in Kennedy Airport, and he was being interviewed because his family thought he had died back in the 40s. It's now 1963. His family thought he had been dead for a decade or two. But as it all, you know, this report is there, that the church is there. I mean, ooh, gee, one of ours. We left one of ours like in prison in, in Siberia. A reporter asked him this question, how did you survive? How did you survive? And uh, the reason I know the, the, the voice is because I've got 24 hours of interviews on what they originally interviewed. Uh, it was on reel to reel, the big old way they would do. And I got 24 hours of his interviews from George Washington University and put it on CD and I've listened to it. I basically have it pretty much by memory which is a scary thought. And the reporter asked him, how did you survive 
23 years. And he was indignant with the question. He didn't like the question. He's, and he says, survive? I didn't survive. The political prisoners of Russia needed a pastor, and I got the assignment. God, surely you wouldn't ask this young, brilliant seminarian to go give his life away in some of the worst human conditions on the earth. Oh, yeah, oh, sure, I'd do that. Oh, yeah. Well, sure, God, you wouldn't give me this world-class education and then send me to the streets of Calcutta to minister to the homeless and the dying and the... And, and, and the oh, no, yeah, I'd do that. After my parents have spent a fortune on this wonderful education, oh, yeah, I'd do that. Well, God, I've raised my children, and now you're saying adopt three kids from Syria? Really, God? You wouldn't do that. Oh, sure, I'd do that. God asked because he knows the wise. Some of you are at places in your life that if you would just say, okay, God, because we said it. We said, I mean, we said, you're saying some really songs. Every once in a while I'm singing songs and I know what I'm going to preach. And I go, well, I'm not singing that song because I, that's what we just said. We just said, like, you're in control. We said, light a fire down in my soul so big that I can't contain it or control it. Now, let me ask you, do you really want to sing that song? Really, really, really? Think about it. Light a fire down in my soul. Come to a level that I am not the one who decides. See, I look at a place like Trent Vineyard. And, you know, here's a bit of the application. I would never attempt to make the application for you personally. But from, from uh, by the way, if you, you want to know this Jesuit priest, you want to read about his life, his name is Walter Sizek, C-I-S-Z-E-K, Walter Sizek. Uh, phenomenal, two books about his life. One is called With God in Russia, and the second one is He Leadeth Me. One he wrote as soon, he actually, it's from these recordings, and they transcribed it and told the story and then afterwards, eight years later, through probably at the end of what was surely a, what we would term today a post-traumatic stress experience, he wrote a book. The first one, With God in Russia, is the story. The second book, He Leadeth Me, which is the best volume on God's will that I've ever read, he basically makes the case of why God asked him to do those things. And he argued, the Lord led me into that life. Well, that was a life of suffering. That doesn't go well with some of the theology around the world today. The Lord led him into suffering and sacrifice and, 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 and such a demand. Yes. Oh, yes. So, you know, I, I just want to say it's, it's not a strange thing. The Lord would came, come along and say to you, the Trent Vineyard, oh, by the way, I have need of your pastors. Would you loan us some half time, just half time? But can we have a little bit of them? You say, well, what about us? Hold on, hold on. I want to make sure they're at my daughter's wedding. Well, you know, I don't want to break anybody's bubble, but there may be a few weddings they're not going to be at. Is that okay to say? <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true, but it could be true. And so we say, well, oh my, oh my. Really? See, 
I would look at it this way. Can you believe God's eyes search the world, his eyes rest on this congregation, he's given you two, three, four of the best pastors in the UK, and he says, I have need of them. Well, the Lord wouldn't ask us for half of our pastors. I think I've made my case pretty good. Yes, he would. He would ask that much? Yes. Some of you here, what, with the nudges of the Lord, and you're thinking, well, hold it, that doesn't make sense. Phil, God, 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 God gave me a life. He told me to train for the ministry. And now you're saying, like, and, and the Lord comes along and says, no, no, we're, we're good with that, but now I want you to go in the world of finances. Another, one, of the, one of the guys that's influenced my life the most in the recent 10 years, maybe, is a man by the name of Christian Lowney. And I actually am a vineyard guy, a, a, a Protestant, but most of my quotes come from my Jesuit brothers. Christian Lowney was a, a Jesuit seminary also, and, and uh, training to be in the ministry. He was in the, at the end of his training, and God says, good enough, you've got a good, this is a good spiritual formation, now leave the preparation of ministry, and I want you to go into the world of finances. Long story short is, Christian Lowney went on to become the general manager of J.P. Morgan. You might have heard of them. Little, little bank, does a little local business that, that moves billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars around the world every day. And he became, I mean, just in the middle of all of that. Hold it, we'd think, oh, he, he was heading in this direction. God said, yes, but I have need of you. And brings him over here with influencing the movement of money around the globe. Great, great writer, some really great material. One is, is Heroic Leadership, the title of a book. The second one is it's about Pope Francis. It's why he leads the way he leads. You, you, you might want to uh, read some of the work of Christian Lowney. Trent Vineyard, the Lord asks great things of you. Uh, you, you, you. I mean, for years, Jan and I have heard of Trent Vineyard. We'd heard of John and Debbie. And, and then we meet John and Debbie, and I go, oh, we hadn't heard the half of it. And knowing the influence of your church, and God says, okay, I've got need of this congregation to serve the movement in this nation. And that's one application. The other one is just your life personally, just your life. What's the Lord asking of you? What's the Lord nudging of you? What are the, and, and, you and you haven't told anybody. And all of a sudden you're feeling this uneasiness, like really adopting three children? Participating in this, this human pain of this refugee issue, thousands and tens of thousands of displaced people, and, and the Lord starts to nudge you. Go, oh, certainly the Lord wouldn't ask me that. Certainly the Lord wouldn't ask for half of my bank account. Of course he would. Well, certainly the Lord wouldn't want my children to go to the ends of the earth. I want my children to live nearby me so I may have access to the grandchildren. Certainly, we've raised these kids in church. We've raised them to love God, but we want them to love God here. <laughs> Certainly, he wouldn't say, send my children to the ends of the earth. Of course he would. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> he does ask crazy things of us. Now, I'm going to just take a moment of silence. I'm going to pray. 
I'm going to ask the Lord, to, you, make, you make an application of this. In the months coming, in the years coming, the Trent Vineyard will make an application of this, however it serves best. But I personally think the fact that you have so willingly shared your pastors with the UK and raising up this movement and continuing after such a great foundation that John and Ellie have, have, uh, have made, certainly, certainly the Lord wouldn't ask more. And I've just learned through the years to say, yes, he would. If he would ask a widow who is starving to death to give the man of God the first piece of bread, he's capable of anything. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that as in the spirit of somebody like Walter Sizek, certainly you wouldn't ask this brilliant young man to give his life away in the cold of Siberia, but you did. Would you ask those fishermen in the Middle East to leave their nets and follow you? And you did. So I pray this morning, here and now, you would speak to us. You would speak to the Trent Vineyard. You would speak to individuals.